I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. Welcome, everyone, to Inside Israel. Today is January 2nd, 2024. Happy Secular New Year to all. And first and foremost, may it be a good and quiet and peaceful and better year for all of us. Last year was really one of the most tumultuous, not only in Israel's history, but probably in Jewish history. So we are looking forward to better things. Today's episode is called Exit Right or Joel Renegs. And that's actually the full title, Exit Right or Joel Renegs. And I want to look at a few stories that have to do with exits, departures, changing space from one place to another. And of course, look at some other topics in the news and answer your questions at the end. A lot of people emailed questions in this week, and it's such a great method to get them ahead of time so I can research them and prepare the best answers possible. So please continue to do that. The first story I want to look at relating to exits is that this week there's pretty a pretty monumental decision made. The IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, chose to withdraw five battalions from Gaza, five full battalions. And if you're wondering how many soldiers are in a battalion, it really depends on the specific battalion we're talking about, whether it's only armored, only infantry. Usually in situations like these, it's a combination. And I'm going to talk about that in a bit, the way the army that we all think about is actually different from the army on the ground. But if we're talking five battalions, we're looking at about 500 to 1,000 soldiers per battalion. We're probably talking about, in this case, anywhere between three and 5,000 soldiers coming out of Gaza. And these are, I think, almost all reserve soldiers. And that's something I'm going to explain in a little bit, too, the whole difference between reserve and what we call in Israel, sadir, which is related to the word seder, like a Passover seder. Seder means order, and sadir is the regular the regular ordered army. Those are the 18 to 21-year-olds. And then there's the reserve, which, which, which we call miluim in Hebrew. Miluim from the word male, which means full, and they're the ones who really make up the full army. So we're talking about 3,000 to 5,000 reservists coming out of Gaza this week. So first of all, why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is that the IDF has really made significant progress in Gaza. Almost all of northern Gaza has been taken care of, meaning there might be a few last Hamas fighters in northern Gaza that we are fighting, but for the most part, we have control. Same with central Gaza. We're making great progress there, and we are now moving on to the south. We've discovered, discovered a whole new array of tunnel networks. We're blowing up tunnels. Uh, as I mentioned before, we've begun flooding some tunnels. Incidentally, I have not heard more about that, whether that's happening more or if that was just an experiment. But I think one reason that we are removing troops from Gaza is there is a feeling that we've made great progress, and I think it's also better progress than a lot of people expected. This is still a relatively short operation, given the, the, the goal set out, which is to wipe out Hamas. Hamas, we're talking between 25 and 30,000 militants, although we are learning more and more about just who is involved in Hamas. This week, we had some pretty sensational interviews given on Israeli TV by former hostages. If your Hebrew is good, you can look these up on, uh, I think, Channel 12 and 13, both had them. 
and you might be able to find a subtitled version. But one of the hostages, uh, a young woman, uh, I believe her name is Maya, she basically said that there are no innocents in Gaza. She was held by a private family. Hamas kidnapped her, but then handed her off to a family where the father wasn't involved with Hamas, but she was living in their apartment in her own room with the guy's wife and children. And the way she described it, the entire family was involved. They would send the little child into her room with a bag of sweets to offer her sweets and then pull the bag away just as a way of taunting her and psychologically torturing her. Uh, they would threaten her. They would move her around uh, whenever they thought airstrikes were coming near. They knew that she was valuable as a trading prize to get back to Israel. But really, her, her the big takeaway from her interview was that there are no innocents in Gaza, that everyone, even the supposedly innocent civilians, are connected. Uh, and we had a 12-year-old a boy assert this too. Uh, this 12-year-old boy is now back in Israel. Uh, he's been moved with his family from the south to the center of Israel. Actually, a kibbutz that, uh, it's called Emek Chefer, a moshav not far from where I live in Ra'anana. And he said that on his first day there, he was beaten. He was pulled through the streets and beaten by civilians. And I, I think we are realizing that it's not just Hamas. I said this last week in these exact words. It's not just Hamas and not Hamas. But really, uh, when civilians in Gaza were able to get their hands on an Israeli child, a 12-year-old, and had the chance to beat him, they did. And I, I think a lot more of the civilians in Gaza feel this way than we realize. So given this, the fact that northern Gaza is now mostly clear, central Gaza is being almost cleared out, we're discovering all these new tunnel networks, blowing them up, operations room in children's rooms and hospitals, the idea feels that we're at a point where we can actually withdraw some of our troops, which is why three to 5,000 are leaving. Another reason is simply the economic toll that this is taking on the reserves, the reservists' families. Uh, we had some really shocking testimony this week from a reserve soldier from Be'er Sheva who was meeting, he was sitting before the Knesset panel on really economic help for the reserve soldiers. And he said that when the country needed me on October 7th, I simply put on my uniform, I picked up my gun, and I went. He owned his own business. He'd recently opened a small, uh, what we call in Hebrew, a makolet. If you've been to Israel, they have these little, they're not quite grocery stores, uh, but they're a little more than just um, a kiosk that you can get cereal, bread, milk, all your necessities and, you know, pasta and all those, a little more things. So it's kind of like a mini grocery store. And he opened one of those in Be'er Sheva and he left the business in order to go fight on October 7th. And he said his business collapsed and he has a child at home. And he said, these were his literal words. He said, I'm afraid to swipe my credit card to buy formula for my daughter because I don't have enough money in my bank account and I don't want to go even further in debt than I am because his business collapsed. And so I think we're really realizing the economic toll that this is taking on the reserve soldiers. And that's another reason that they're trying to pull the reservists out. I can speak to this personally, by the way. As I mentioned last week, uh, one of my twin daughters got called up to the army to do a job that she actually didn't do while she was an officer in the regular army. Uh, for her reserve service right now, they assigned her to an office that processes economic claims specifically for wives whose husbands are in the reserves serving on the northern border in the West Bank or in Gaza. 
And she talks to them, she takes an economic uh, financial profile and helps allocate money for these families. And what she is reporting to me, what she's telling me is that these families are really suffering. Their incomes have changed drastically. Uh, some of them literally don't know if they'll be able to survive another month without some sort of funding from the government. It's sort of a, a slow process, a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork. She's also saying that when they do allocate even a thousand shekels, which to give you perspective is about you know 300 and something dollars, uh, these wives are extremely grateful and sometimes even crying on the phone. It makes her job very meaningful, obviously, but it also it shows you just how much this small amount of money can mean to these families. So another reason that we are reserve we are releasing reserve soldiers from Gaza is because of the economic burden it is placing on them. And the final reason, and this is sort of denied by the Israeli government, but the final reason is pressure from the United States. There is talk that Biden and others in the administration kind of demanded that Israel scale down the war and specifically pull out a certain number of troops. And of course, the IDF and Netanyahu denied that this has anything to do with American pressure, but you you really can't discount this. Uh, you know, when people speak off the record, uh, you should give it at least a little bit of weight if it's an administration official. And these are American administration's officials who are saying this. And so I think another reason is American pressure. So I want to talk about this whole miluim, which is reserve duty, and sadir, which is regular conscription, that dichotomy. Like I said before, when we think of the Israeli army, what we tend to think about are the 18 to 21 year olds. Every 18 year old gets drafted women for two years, men for two years and eight months. That's every Jewish male in Israel, except for the ultra Orthodox Haredi black hat Jews. They are not obligated to serve. We do have a few more volunteering right now, more really than ever before, but for the most part, still Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jews do not serve. So right now you have about two-thirds of all Jews in Israel serving in the Israeli army from 18 to 21. And that is the regular conscripted army, infantry, artillery, tanks, of course, plenty of non-combat units, intelligence. So that's what we usually think about when we think of the IDF. But when it comes to actually fighting a war, and this is something I only learned when I was in the army myself, it turns out that those soldiers, the 18 to 21 year olds, their job for the most part is to hold down the fort, to hold down the enemy for the first 48 to 72 hours while the reserves are mobilizing. So when it comes to actually fighting the war, the reserves are the ones who mostly do that. And right now, the reservists in Israel, it depends how old you are, it depends when you were drafted and uh, what job you had. But for the most part, you serve in the reserves if you're a regular soldier until about 40 years old, if you're an officer in a combat unit until 42 years old, and if you're an officer in a non-combat unit until 45. And they can even ask you to stay on longer or to do a different job. So the, you know, when you're talking about people in their 40s, mid-40s, these are people with you know, wives, families, not just young children, but even older children. And you can see how much of a burden it would be on them to be in the reserves. But these, uh, these are the ones who have been very active in Gaza. Reserve soldiers. Also in the north, it is primarily reserve soldiers. And now I've heard that in the West Bank, it's exclusively reservists who are operating uh, in the West Bank. So the reservists really are the backbone of the army. As 
I was told literally when I was a soldier in the Armored Corps back in the late 90s, Atem Hasalat, meaning you're the salad. We are we are just the salad, the first course, who is uh, there to uh, sort of keep the enemy busy until the main course, the reservists, arrive. So what's going to happen in Gaza now? Well, one option is that we're just going to have 5,000 less soldiers in there because they came out. But another option is that we're going to replace them with the 18 to 21-year-olds uh, who are regular conscripts. Um, so we'll, we'll I'll have to keep you posted on exactly what happens. But it is significant that we have three to 5,000 reservists exiting Gaza at this point. Uh, for the most part, when they serve in Gaza, all soldiers in Gaza would, are staying for weeks at a time. Maybe they get 24 hours off every three weeks, every month. Uh, there are some who've been home only once who are not home at all. They do not have their cell phones with them. And it, it was very poignant. During this Knesset, I don't want to call it a trial, but during his statements that this uh, business owner, this grocery store owner, what he was saying was, I have no money. I have no money right now. My business collapsed. And talk about Israeli chutzpah. One of the Knesset members said, why didn't you fill out the relevant paperwork online to get government grants? We're offering grants and subsidies to, you know, Miluim reserve soldiers who left their business to fight. And he said to them, you took my cell phone the minute I entered Gaza. I didn't have a cell phone for a month. And you're asking me how I didn't go online to fill out your paperwork? So I think it was a little bit of a a shock to, uh, it sort of shocked the Knesset members as well and revealed to the Israeli public just how much many of the Knesset members are out of touch with the circumstances that our soldiers are going through. And by the way, this has been a complaint uh, from the beginning that there are certain Knesset members who just seem really out of touch and aren't aware of the army's plans and aren't aware of uh, all the intelligence uh, that could have predicted what was going to happen on October 7th. Um, so this is a part of a larger discussion going on in Israel right now. So that is the that is the first story about exits. The soldiers uh, that we have three to five thousand leaving Gaza. The second has to do with hostages and talks of another hostage deal and how to get the hostages out. I've been pretty vocal in this in Inside Israel on previous broadcasts, if you've joined us, you know that I really don't foresee another hostage deal happening anytime soon, and maybe not at all. I don't think Hamas really wants one. Uh, I've said why. I think that the prisoners, certainly the women and elderly who've, who are still there, and children, if there are children who are still alive, that they've been, the suspicion is that they have been abused so badly that they don't want their stories to get out. So what Hamas is saying right now is that they will have no hostage deal unless all Israeli forces, unless there's a complete ceasefire and all Israeli forces exit Gaza. And as you can imagine, this is a non-starter for Israelis and the IDF. Uh, I think 75% uh, of Israelis want the war to continue and to, to continue even harder, full gas, as we say in Israeli slang, with full, you know, pedal to the metal, um, that the best way to get the hostages out, most Israelis believe, is through military pressure as opposed to some sort of negotiation. Uh, but right now, there are talks of Qatar and Egypt sort of uh, operating these behind-the-scenes talks to have another hostage deal 
but from what I am hearing, there really doesn't seem to be anything viable on the table, both because of Hamas's demand that all Israeli troops leave Gaza, and also because uh, at this point, Israelis and uh, the Israeli government are very hesitant to give up more prisoners from Israeli uh, jails. You know, any deal that would happen would be not just for that there would be a ceasefire in Gaza, but it would be what's called all for all, meaning all hostages out in exchange for all prisoners in Israeli jails. And we're talking about people who have, uh, you know, committed murder, suicide bombings, you know, those kind of people being released. We saw already what happened in uh, 2011 when Gilad Shalit was released from captivity after five years in Gaza. Many, many prisoners were released, over a thousand. More than a third of them had committed murder, including Sinwar, who is the architect of the October 7th massacre. And Israelis are very, very hesitant to release that kind of prisoner from our jails again. Personally, I agree with them. Uh, I'm not saying it was a mistake in 2011, but I think you know it's very easy to look back and Monday morning quarterback what decisions were made. But at this point, we need to be very careful about who we're allowing out. And I think we also have to think carefully about what the best way to get the hostages out really is. It could be that more pressure on Hamas, uh, more military action, more destruction of their assets and resources is the way to get better conditions for us. Now, on that point, I do want to bring up the idea of fuel. In past episodes, people have asked about aid going into Gaza. And we had a Knesset member this week in Israel gave a very fiery speech that he said, and he's he's sort of a right-wing Knesset member, I think he's in Likud, but he basically said, how are we letting fuel into Gaza when the hostages have not been released? And my only answer here is that this has to be American pressure. Uh, just to be clear, when we allow fuel into Gaza, we are literally fueling the Hamas operation. We can assume that this fuel is not going to the civilians, to the residents of Gaza, it is being hijacked by Hamas. We have video, we have pictures. Uh, a lot of the aid that goes into Gaza is taken over by Hamas immediately. And why is this fuel so important? Well, not only does it fuel Hamas rockets, but more importantly, and I've said this before, it fuels the oxygen system for their underground tunnel network. Uh, as we discover these tunnels, we're learning that they're not just a little bit underground, but they are 50, 70 meters beneath ground. We're talking about 100 to 200 feet below ground. Oxygen does not flow freely down there. So they use generators to pump oxygen in, and these generators are powered by fuel. And there is no question that when we allow fuel into the Gaza Strip, it is it is being used to help fuel the oxygen system in these tunnels. So why are we doing it if we know this? My belief is that it is only because of outside pressure, specifically American pressure. Uh, Israel knows that it, Israel knows where this fuel is going. And if we had our druthers, we wouldn't allow it in, but we need to allow certain amounts of aid in in order to have US backing and other countries, I guess, not <laughs> hate us as much as they do. Is that the way to put it? Uh, so we are letting in fuel, but just I want to make it clear to you so you understand when fuel goes in, that that fuel is is fueling uh, the Hamas mission. But you know, that's that's one of the that's one of the conundrums that Israel has to deal with as it tries to balance its own needs versus those of of the the public pressure and United States backing.
So the third story about exits has to do with Netanyahu himself. And this is why the title of this broadcast is also called And Joel Renegs. Because my mission when I first started this podcast was to not be political, to try to give you as much news and perspective as I could, but without sharing my own political views. But already, I think this is our 12th one. So I didn't even last three months. But at this point, I, I sort of need to let my own opinion come out here. I do believe that it is time for Netanyahu to step down and make an exit. And I want to tell you why. There are a few reasons why I believe this. Number one is, first of all, public sentiment. A new survey was put out by the is uh, by uh, this week by the Israeli, I think the Institute for Israeli Democracy, it's called, or the Israel Democracy Institute. And the numbers, as I've mentioned before, only 4% of Israelis believe that Netanyahu is a trustworthy source of information about the war. But maybe more relevant to what I just said is that only 15% of Israelis believe that Netanyahu should stay on as prime minister, that he's the best person for the job. That means 85%, I mean, beyond majority of Israelis believe that Netanyahu is not the right one for the job. So simply from a perspective of public sentiment, I think it's time he go. I don't think that would be enough, though. We need some more reasons. So here are some other reasons. Number one, or number two, the more I learn about October 7th and what we knew ahead of time and what led up to it, the more I believe that Netanyahu holds a lot of responsibility. We had a Knesset member this week, Galit Adbayam, Adbari, uh, Galit Adbariam. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's a Likud member, and she apologized. Her literal words were, I have sinned. She gave an apology to the Israeli public, and she basically said that I sinned against this country. I got caught up supporting Netanyahu. I got caught up supporting judicial reform. And all of us who are part of this, and she said there were only 100 people. When you think about it, there were only 100 of us who really caused all of this to happen between the Knesset members, the social media influencers, the other politicians, not more than 100. She said, but those 100 of us managed to cause all of this to happen. And she basically spoke to the Israeli public, apologizing for her role, apologizing for being such a staunch reporter of Netanyahu and judicial reform. And I think it sort of signaled to the public just how responsible uh, it is. She says, I have burning anger against Netanyahu, what he did to the country and what he did to me. And, you know, she said that when she woke up on October 7th, she turned to her partner and when she got the news and said, it's because of us, it's because of us that this happened. So she's taking responsibility. And the culture that Netanyahu created leading up to October 7th, with judicial reform, pitting Ashkenazi against Sephardic, wealthy against poor, the socioeconomic divisions, the religious divisions. Uh, it really did lead to a culture where the army would, took its eye off the ball, everyone was distracted, and uh, the warnings that we had were overlooked. If you go even deeper into Israeli history, though, and I did just to research this, you really realize just how much Netanyahu made it his mission to make sure there would never be a Palestinian state in the West Bank. That was his number one priority, even if it meant 
fueling money and support to Hamas in Gaza. His whole ethos was Hamas is an asset. We need to support them. And he was sending lots of money to them, allowing them to pretty much do as they please. This whole tunnel network, it didn't get built overnight. Uh, but we overlooked it simply because it was better in his eyes to have Hamas doing this than to have a state in the West Bank. And I listened to some to some experts and read some of the the paperwork on this. And there are many experts who believe that Oslo actually could have been a success, that there could have been a lasting peace with the Palestinians. Now, no one knows for sure. But what I do know and what no one will really argue with is that Netanyahu did everything possible to make sure that there would be no state there and, and no separation. I'm a fan more of separation than I am of, of a Palestinian state, but separation is what we need most most of all. I think the biggest reason, though, that I think Netanyahu needs to step down is that he is beginning to play politics now with the war. And I'm going to give you a few examples. This past week, there was supposed to be a meeting between four people. And listen to who they are. You'll get a sense of how important this meeting would be. The chief of staff of the army, the head of the Mossad, which is like the CIA, the head of the Shin Bet, the Shabak, that's Israel's internal security service, sort of like the FBI, and the minister of defense. So really, these are the four pillars of Israeli defense right there. The head of the army, the head of external intelligence outside of Israel, the head of internal intelligence inside Israel, and a minister of defense. There was supposed to be a meeting between the four of them to discuss the war and what happens next and to discuss a passage hostage deal and Netanyahu barred the Minister of Defense, Yoav Galant, from meeting with the other three. Now, that makes absolutely no sense from a military point of view, from a strategic point of view. You want all four of those heads in the room for the sake of the country. But he barred Yoav Galant because he doesn't trust him. Right now, when you poll Israelis and ask them who is the most trustworthy person in the country, most people are saying either the IDF spokesman, Hanegbi, or Yoav Galant. Yoav Galant was one of the first ones who apologized and who said, this is on me right after October 7th. But he also said, I will do everything that I can right now to work within the confines of the state and of the army to make sure that the country is safe and that this war is fought correctly. And people have trusted him this, since then. I trust him immensely. And he, Netanyahu, did not allow him to meet with the head of the chief of staff. What he's really worried about is Gallant meeting with the head of the Mossad and the Shin Bet, because they're the ones who are in charge of hostage negotiations. And Netanyahu is afraid of what might be agreed to if he's not in the room. So that's number one, the fact that he simply barred the minister of defense from meeting with those other three. That's not acceptable. Number two, post-war Gaza. You know, everyone's asking what happens the day after. I mean, this is such a big question. Well, believe it or not, this week was the first time Netanyahu was scheduled to have a meeting about the day after. He'd put it off until then. Now, we're almost three months after October 7th to not have a meeting yet with other people in the government about what is going to happen the day after. Again, I think that's inexcusable. But he finally did have a meeting scheduled this week, and he canceled the meeting. 
at the last moment. Why did he cancel the meeting? Because his right-wing coalition member, Betsalel Smotrich, who was the head of finance, minister of finance, very white right-wing and extremist, he wanted to be in this meeting too, and he was not scheduled to be in this meeting. It, it's really not an appropriate meeting for him. But Betsalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Vir are very hardliners. They believe, you know, one of the questions people wrote in this week is, what are the talks of the day after? They believe, Smotrich and Ben-Kvir, that Israel should reoccupy Gaza. And that means putting settlers back in Gaza. We had settlements in Gaza until 2005, when Ariel Sharon pulled out unilaterally. And they're part of a small minority of Israelis who want to have settlers back in Gaza. And because they were not going to be in this meeting to discuss the day after, uh, Netanyahu, uh, they threatened to leave the government and Netanyahu canceled the meeting. Again, Netanyahu is putting his own personal political agenda ahead of the needs of the country. We need this meeting to happen. We need to figure out what's going to happen the day after. We need to decide. We need to have some sort of plan in place. And the fact that he canceled this meeting is a clear signal that what's most important to him is somehow surviving politically. Now, I, I can't imagine that he really thinks he's going to be able to survive politically, not when 85% of Israelis are saying they don't want him as the prime minister of the country. And I think something in the 40s believe that he should step down now. But Netanyahu has never been one to, to, to follow logic, and he's never been one to step down or to, to accept his own defeat. So he is still playing politics. And let me tell you, for me, you know, I have uh, a son who's right now 13, and I, I mention him because my three daughters could only go to combat units in the army if they volunteer to. Uh, two of them are already out of the army, and the one who's waiting for her, she actually got her draft date. Uh, so in June, she'll be going to the, uh, the induction center for the first time for her interviews. But she does not want com combat. Uh, she wants to be a combat instructor, but not a combat soldier herself. So you know, I'm less worried there. But to have a son in Israel, your son can be drafted into a combat unit, even if he doesn't want to be. It's simply the needs of the army. And I feel much less enthusiastic about having a son serve in the army when I know that there's a prime minister whose first priority is his political agenda and not fighting the war uh, the way it should be and not planning for after the war the way we need. So this is really a matter of public trust. And that's the third reason that I really feel, um, yeah, I feel the time has come for Netanyahu to step down. Will it make a difference what I say? I don't think it will. And I certainly know that he will not do it voluntarily. It would have to happen from really, I think, his own party within the Knesset deciding they no longer wanted him as their leader. And this is possible. If you were to have more politicians come out and start apologizing and start saying that we are angry at Netanyahu for what he has done, then you could actually see the government collapse and we would hold new elections. But until that happens, you know, the next elections, I think, are still two and a half to three years away. Uh, that would be the next time we actually have elections if that does not happen, if we don't have a collapse from within the Knesset itself. Uh, I don't see Netanyahu stepping down. So what are Israelis talking about right now? Well, as I mentioned, we have some new poll numbers that came out. And one of the best ways to know what they're talking about is, is through the numbers themselves. Uh, as you know, some of you are on my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic. I love Hebrew words. And one of the favorite, one of my favorite Hebrew words is 
Mispar and Mesaper. Mes Mispar and Mesaper, it's the exact same spelling, Mem Samech Pe Resh. Mesaper means to tell a story, and Mispar tells a number. And it means number. And I think Hebrew, I think Hebrew knows that uh, the numbers often tell the story. And in this case, it certainly does. So let's look at some of the numbers that came out. As I mentioned, only 15% of Israelis believe that Netanyahu is fit to be prime minister. Although there is a split as to when he should step down, whether now or later. When it comes to hostages, 56% of Israelis believe that military pressure is the best way to release the hostages, as opposed to 24% who think that some sort of agreement, diplomacy, or discussion uh, is, is the way to get the hostages released. But that's pretty significant that more than half of Israelis think that increased military pressure is the way. Only 26% of Israelis believe that our goal of defeating Hamas or dismantling Hamas significantly only 26% of Israelis feel that we have met that goal. And I agree with that. We have not at this point dismantled Hamas significantly. There are far, far fewer rockets being launched into Israel. You can see graphs of how many rockets are being launched, but they still are. And at the stroke of midnight, literally the stroke of midnight between December 31st and January, 30, uh, January 1st, so ringing in the new year, Hamas launched a barrage of rockets in Tel Aviv. So there's no way, I don't know, I don't know how 26% can say that we've achieved our goal of dismantling uh, of dismantling Hamas the way we intended. Um, so I think to me, it's pretty obviously obvious we have not. How about the goal of getting our hostages home? Well, somehow 14% believe that we have achieved that goal or enough of that goal. Again, I don't agree with that. I'm with the 86% who believe that until every last hostage is home, uh, we have not achieved that goal. Well, let's shift to the North. Only 50%, that's like exactly half, right? Only 50% of Israelis believe that we have it in us to fight a two-front war. Now, at the same time, it really doesn't matter what the ordinary Israeli believes. It's more important what the army believes and their assessment of our strength. But it's really becoming, I think, clear to Israelis that there very, very well may be a north on the northern front. And that shifts us to the next topic I want to talk about, which is the north itself. Here's what we're discovering about the north, and here's what we know. First of all, the town of Kiryatshmona in the north is evacuated. And it's been evacuated for, I think, a month and a half. This is kind of astounding. It's not the biggest city in Israel, but it's not the smallest one e either. And now imagine St. Louis were evacuated for a month and a half because of a war. That's sort of what it would be like. You have an entire city in the north of Israel, very close to the Lebanese border, which is completely evacuated right now. And roads are closed, used entirely by the military. So there really is talk that there is going to be a war in the north. I've heard from my sources that there's an actual date for a war with the north, that this date is about two weeks away from now. I don't know how reliable that is, but it's what I've heard from some of the contacts I have inside the IDF. Um, we've also discovered a huge tunnel network underneath uh, Lebanon in South Lebanon that is being used by Hezbollah. 
And from what I've read, this tunnel network is more, in quotes, impressive than the tunnel network that Hamas had, has, and still had, had and has beneath Gaza. That the tunnels are wider, that they're deeper, that they have more intricate electrical systems and communication systems. So Hezbollah has this whole tunnel network going on as well. And just to be clear, there is a United States UN, sorry, not United States, United Nations. There is a UN resolution stating that Hezbollah cannot be close to the border with Israel uh, as a result of uh, our most recent war with Hezbollah. But this is not enforced by the United Nations. And what Israel is saying, Israel would much prefer, prefer a diplomatic solution. Israel would prefer that the United Nations simply enforce this UN resolution that calls for no armed militants within a certain buffer zone close to the Lebanese border, but they don't enforce it. Now, the UN obviously spends a lot of time coming down on Israel. I don't know if you know the number, but in 2023, the United Nations officially condemned Israel 14 times. They condemned the rest of the world seven times. So twice as much as the rest of the world. That includes Russia, China, South Korea, anyone, North Korea, anyone you can imagine, seven times, Israel 14 times. So that's where they're spending their time, the United Nations, but they are not enforcing this UN resolution, which they need to. But it's looking more and more like we might have a conflict with Hezbollah in South Lebanon. Also, uh, this is just very sort of breaking news within the last few hours, Israel assassinated the deputy leader of Hamas, Salah al-Arroi, I said that correctly, in Beirut, there was an explosion in a house he was in. Israel had no comment, but he is the deputy commander of Hamas, and Hezbollah said that Israel will be punished, and the IDF immediately said that they are now on high alert, expecting some sort of reprisal from Hezbollah for the targeting, assassination, whatever you want to call it, of the deputy commander of Hamas in Beirut. But things are heating up in the north, and whether or not, you know, it, if only 50% of Israelis expect a conflict, it doesn't matter. It does look to me like there is going to be uh, a conflict in the north as well. So that is what Israelis are talking about. Our Israelis are talking about, are we, able to, are we able to actually fight a war on this second front? Uh, Renee, somehow you began sharing your screen again. You can't do that. I'm not sure how that happened. All right, guys, quick pause here. Thank you. Okay. So now I want to take your questions, but before I do, I want to do um, very quickly run down some of the other news stories that I guess are worth mentioning. As you probably saw, Claudine Gay stepped down from Harvard. This is good news, but I am disappointed that all the headlines are about her plagiarism. Don't get me wrong. As a writer, I really believe that plagiarism is bad. However, it's really her weak, weak stance on anti-Semitism on campus. That is the reason she should have stepped down. Uh, but again, I think they're couching it and trying to save face by saying it's plagiarism. But uh, look, it's good she's gone. I think Harvard was feeling pressure from many fronts, but it's too bad they couldn't just fess up and say that um, it was her stance on genocide of Jews on campus and context that is the reason she needed to be removed. Israel is actually going to The Hague to defend itself against South African claims of genocide. South Africa put a claim in, filed a protest measure against Israel for, uh, for genocide in Gaza. 
And Israel, in a first, is actually going to The Hague to defend itself. I think this is a good move. I think too often Israel has just ignored these. Maybe in the past it was a good idea just to ignore them and sort of the idea that the more attention you call to it, you're just throwing fuel on the fire. But Israel has some very good spokesmen right now. I hope and assume they'll send their best to The Hague. And the idea is to make a clear case for why this is not genocide. And I just can't, I can't help but point out the hypocrisy here of South Africa, of all countries, and their you know ethical track record that they are the ones now calling out Israel uh, on ethical reasons. It's just so absurd and ridiculous that um, as a comedian, it's hard to even write a joke about it. We have, a, in terms of soldiers in Gaza, uh, we had sort of a disturbing finding this week. Um, right now, 170 soldiers uh, have been killed in Gaza. And what's especially disturbing is that 15% uh, of those deaths, actually a little more than 15%, it turns out, were from friendly fire episodes. And that's such a, a terrible term, friendly fire. There's nothing friendly about it. But uh, they were killed either, and they, they sort of broke it down, either by airstrikes that were called in by Israeli troops against Hamas, but it turns out it was actually other Israeli forces in Gaza. Uh, or simply misidentifying them on in the heat of battle, thinking they were Hamas and shooting them. I've heard, this is unconfirmed, but I've heard from a high up in Gaza that there was an incident of a soldier waking up in the middle of the night. Um, typically, they sleep in abandoned buildings in Gaza, maybe throw a mattress down, maybe not even a mattress, but a soldier waking up in the middle of the night and having a sort of paranoid delusion and thinking he was being attacked and shooting uh, a fellow soldier. Um, that's not confirmed, but I can, I can attest to being a former combat soldier myself in Lebanon that it's not just what you're doing during the day that's harrowing, but at night you're barely sleeping, sometimes not sleeping at all. Uh, I would often hallucinate when I was in the army and I'm, I had full conversations I remember this full conversations with bushes thinking that it was a childhood friend from home, like long, intimate conversations. And I had been uh, gone so long with no sleep or an hour or two of sleep a night uh, that you know, my, my brain was not functioning. And we can only assume that this is happening in Gaza as well. So as shocking as that story is that I just told you uh, about the soldier opening fire on his fellow troops, it's it's also not surprising knowing what they're going through, plus all the mental stress of, of fighting. But in any case, we're looking at 17% of all deaths in Gaza to IDF troops being as a result of friendly fire. And the last story that we really have to touch on, and it's a great segue into the questions that you sent in, is about judicial reform. This uh, week, the highest court in Israel, the Supreme Court, ruled 8 to 7, only one vote majority, but ruled 8 to 7 to overrule uh, the reasonableness clause that had been passed by the Knesset and Netanyahu and everyone else in his coalition this past year. And a lot of your questions that you sent in were about this. Let me just give you some background about what this reasonableness clause was, is. Basically, the Supreme Court in Israel has the right to strike down any law that it finds not reasonable. So a law has to be reasonable in order to actually be approved by the Supreme Court. And the reason this is important is because the, Israel, the way Israeli government is set up, you will never have a situation where the prime minister and the legislature are not 
aligned. In the U.S., it's very common to have Congress be Republican and the president be Democratic or the other way around, that you would have a split in Israel. That never happens because what happens is only when a coalition is formed in the Knesset, then they select a prime minister. That means the prime minister is from one of them. So there is no separation of power between the executive and the legislature in Israel. The only separation of power is the Supreme Court. They're the only ones who are independent. And they need to be able to say this law is not reasonable. I mean, this is my personal opinion. There are those, believe me, who don't agree. Uh, but I believe that the Supreme Court needs to be able to say this law is not reasonable and therefore we are striking it down. But during judicial reform, the one major achievement, I mean, think back to 2023, began around January, February 2023, eight, nine months of judicial reform. The one achievement that came out of it was that they got rid of this reasonableness clause. And now it's been overturned by the Supreme Court, which basically means it was all for nothing. We're right back where we started. And yet all the things that happened over the past year, all the divisiveness in Israeli society, perhaps October 7th, we can't say for sure. Someone asked about that and I'll address it. But if you think of all we went through in Israel this past year, and we're actually right back where we started, this clause has been overturned, which they spent so much time trying to pass. Uh, it's, again, it's uh, it's shocking. It's eye-opening. Um, a bit humbling for all of us as we as we look at the country and where we stand now. So that leads me to the first question that um, that someone wrote in. And this is a pretty good question. She said, I was with family this past weekend, and the question came up, would October 7th have happened if Netanyahu were not in power? And she went on to say that one of my sons believes that it would have, and the other one thought that it would not have. Obviously, it's impossible to know. What do I personally believe? I personally believe that it would have happened regardless of who was in power. I'll tell you why I think that. For one thing, we know that this was not a spontaneous plan. This was years, years in the making. It was also very impressive, again in quotes, the plan. Uh, this was not just firing rockets and wanting to see where they landed. We had 30, 20, 30,000 Gazans coming into Israel every day to work, and they were taking notes and spying and learning the streets and learning the layouts. They had maps of our kibbutzim and settlements. They knew where the generators were so they could shut off the power. Uh, this was an intricate plan that was a long time in the making, and I don't think that a different prime minister um, would have made a difference on that front. Now, you could have said, what about all the judicial reform? If there hadn't been that chaos, would that have made allowed the army to be more prepared? I really don't think so. I think you know, I've mentioned this before, that we shifted a lot of our soldiers from Gaza to the West Bank because of all the chaos going on in the West Bank. We have Itamar Ben-Gvir, the head of the minister of the police, uh, who was visiting the Temple Mount for no reason at all except to make a statement. And because of that, he riled up uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. We had to send more battalions and more soldiers there. So definitely, definitely we would have had more soldiers down near Gaza had Netanyahu not been in power. However, 
the real reason October 7th was able to happen was because Hamas was able to infiltrate one army base called Re'im, which is right on the border with the Gaza Strip. I know Re'im very well. My daughter served on Re'im for her entire two years of service. I can't tell you how many Saturdays we would drive down and do picnics outside the base. It's a very big base. One of the mistakes the IDF is now realizing is that they concentrated too many, too much of its power in this one base. Apparently, from what I read, something like communications for the entire Southern Command was located in this base, as well as all the observation posts of the Gaza border were in this space and some very important sectors of the Southern Command. What this means is if you can take out this one base, you've pretty much destroyed the IDF's entire ability to defend the South. And that is what Hamas did. They were able to infiltrate, infiltrate Re'im. Uh, I don't think anyone saw that happening. I don't think anyone saw them coming in by air. We assumed for so long that if Hamas was going to come into Israel from Gaza, it was going to be through this tunnel network, and we were very on top of the tunnel network. If you look at all the ways that Hamas came into Israel on October 7th, the one way they did not come was underground. They did not come in through the tunnels. So we were successful in handling the tunnel threat, but they came right through the fence. They were able to come in through from the air right into the Raim base. Given this, I don't think that a different prime minister would have been been able to to stop that. Also, the real reason October 7th happened is because of a failure of intelligence. And this is a culture within the army. You got to understand, you know, the army is its own organism in Israel. It certainly reports to the prime minister, but there's a lot of ego, a lot of politicking, um, certainly old, you know, ideas. We were just, I think the main takeaway from October 7th is, was, I used this phrase before, a failure of imagination. We simply couldn't believe that Hamas was, had the gall or the cojones to pull this off or that they wanted to pull this off. So our own failure to imagine it, uh, that's, that's really on the army's part. The intelligence was there. And the culture within the army was not strong enough to allow this intelligence to be read and to have action taken upon it. One of the other findings that came out this week is that it was found, and I think the New York Times reported this, that Israel didn't even have a plan for something like October 7th happening. So even you know this summer, there was intelligence from the Shmona Matayim 8200 intelligence unit that, Israel, that Hamas was planning this type of attack. And office, you know, the officers, as it went up the chain, dismissed it and said, it's fantasia, it's a fantasy, it would never happen. But you would think the minimum they would do is put together a plan for in case it were to happen. But they didn't even do that. We didn't even have a plan for if this theoretical were to transpire. Uh, so it's really a failure of imagination and action within the army itself. And that kind of thing had been brewing, I think, for years. So I personally don't think that a different prime minister would have made a difference. It is, however, why we're taking seriously all these other threats we have right now. And this is a segue to our next question. Someone wrote in saying that he heard news stories about residents in uh, Israel along the Green Line hearing jackhammers from over the Green Line in the West Bank. 
Uh, yes, this is true. There have been many reports of people in Israel living along the Green Line saying that they're hearing digging and hearing jackhammers and other equipment being used, usually at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. And this really can only be one thing. This can be tunnels being dug in the West Bank. Now, you know, we already have discovered a tunnel network in Lebanon. We've discovered tunnel networks in Gaza. And we know that there are tunnel networks in the West Bank. It was checked out and it was found that no, this drilling sound, there's no evidence of tunnels being built. But I'm telling you, I can't imagine what else it was. And just to give some context, uh, in 2014, we had complaints. That's you know almost 10 years ago. Now it is 10 years ago. We had complaints in the north, residents in the north, saying that they were hearing digging uh, at night, in the middle of the night, similar to what we're hearing right now from residents near the West Bank. And Israel investigated, investigated, took some action, but not enough action. And lo and behold, Hezbollah now has this entire tunnel network. I think it's, uh, I think it's obvious that there are now tunnels being built uh, in the West Bank as well. And I do think Israel is now on high alert. We're aware that what Hamas did on October 7th, Hezbollah and Hamas in the West Bank would attempt to do a, try this same maneuver uh, on those borders as well. So I think our antenna are up in a way that it wasn't before. Um, but yeah, and in reference to the jackhammers, yes, it's been reported. Um, so far, they said they have found nothing. The army has said they haven't found anything, but I, I can't imagine what else it would be. Many of you asked about the reasonableness clause. Will this change everything? How are Israelis reacting? Uh, I think there's a lot of frustration in Israel for all that we went through, all those nine months having the reasonableness clause and judicial reform debated, and here we are back where we started. But at the same time, it's not taking over the news, really the fighting the war, getting the hostages home. That is the main priority. Um, what we are hearing about more is that political divisiveness is starting up again. We've had a lot of unity in Israel for these first two, uh, two months, sort of in, you know, the slogan is, uh, together we will win. And the country really was unified. But right now we're starting to see uh, politicking and bickering and fighting. Uh, some of the most vocal two are Smotrich and Ben Gvir from uh, Netanyahu's coalition. And uh, I think we're going to see more of that in um in the coming days and weeks. And it could be the very thing that does lead to Netanyahu step, to step down. I don't see it him actually resigning, but if the coalition falls apart, that would be the one way that we would have a new prime minister in. Uh, someone wrote in, uh, my friend Lauren, saying uh, that he's going to Israel soon. Where can he volunteer? Uh, that's a, a great question. I'm happy to answer that. Happy that you're going to Israel. And really, I think going to Israel is 90% of it. I mean, just going to Israel. And while you are there, if you any of you are going, Ask Israelis how they are. Tell them that you live outside of Israel. Tell them that you're thinking of them. It means a lot, just those words. It means a lot to the Israeli on the street. But as for where you can actually volunteer, uh, you know, there are, it's, I've recommended Food Bank Rescue uh, Israel in the past, but I did a little bit, uh, I've tried to look up a few others. And I found a link that, um, just excuse me for a second while I copy it here, I found a link to a website that seems to list several places where volunteers can actually do work on the ground. So instead of just giving money, and giving money is important, believe me, but instead of just giving money, check out that link. It's uh, israel21c.org, and then a list of places you can volunteer 
Uh, one of them I mentioned just now, Food Bank uh, Israel Rescue, that's run by Leket Israel. Leket is a food bank, the main food bank in Israel, in based in Ra'anana. Um, and so that for sure, like uh, check out that. We'd love to have you volunteering. I know picking fruits and vegetables is um, is still in need, especially now that Palestinian workers have been barred from entering from the West Bank. We need to solve that problem. I don't know if they're still taking volunteers. I know medical personnel are still needed. Um, but check out that site I just posted there. I want to leave you with something a little uplifting. And there were a couple of stories this past week in Israel of this happening, um, of people in their hometowns. And this happened in Ra'anana as well, where I live, but it's happened in some other towns as well, where soldiers were sitting outside at a cafe or a restaurant. And uh, I'll tell you the story that happened in Ra'anana. Um, there were about 15 soldiers in a restaurant, sitting outside the restaurant in Ra'anana, and a woman came up and asked you, you know, what are you doing here? Because it's common to see one or two, but to see 15 all in the same uniform with the same tag, um, it sparked her interest. And they said, we're, we're actually here for the funeral. Uh, there was an, actually an officer, I mentioned this last week, from Ra'anana who was killed. And apparently these soldiers were there for his funeral. And after the funeral, they had some time off. So they were in town uh, getting you know, just getting a meal. And so this woman went into the restaurant and said, I want to pay for their entire meal. She did this anonymously. And uh, I heard another story uh, like this, where there was a group of soldiers in Israel this past week, and a, a guy, a man went into the restaurant, and he said, you know, this group of soldiers, don't tell anyone, but I want to pay for them. And uh, the owner of the restaurant said, you need to get in line, because already eight other people have decided, or have offered to pay for, for their meal. Uh, so that's, you know, those are some of the little things that you are seeing in Israel right now. When we see soldiers, we pick up the tab, we offer them rides, we're giving them, uh, we're doing all we can uh, to make it just a little bit easier uh, for them and to show them that we're behind them, that we love them, and that we care. I want to thank you all for joining. I love that we have uh, such a large group of people who are relying on this for, for good news and for insights. It is 2024. It is a new year. And I would really love to hear from you what you would like from this as we move into the new year. I'm going to try to get some guests on, if possible, to offer some different perspectives. But are there other things that you would like? Email me, joel at joelchaznoff.com. Uh, just send me what you would like uh, to see in the coming year, because uh, I really want to make this as enjoyable and as, an, as insightful as possible. Thank you all. Send your questions ahead of time. It's been a pleasure, as always, and I'm glad we are exploring Israel from the inside together. Behitrot and Laila Tov. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.